So um, here's what I want to start us out with today. Every week has sort of a major point. And the first week, the major point comes at the very end of the introduction, which is that God is truth. And therefore, as Christians, when we make disciples, we make disciples in wisdom. Okay, we are bringing people into the wisdom of God. And therefore, we must be wise. Secondly, God is love. And therefore, when we bring people to Christ, we act with self-giving love, the kind of love that Christ showed on the cross, which leads to a third point, which is, we always respect the freedom of the individual to make their own choices so that all forms of violence, and as I think I mentioned that day, being a lawyer, I can assure you there are forms of violence that are not physical. Uh, all forms of violence, be they physical, mental, or moral, are excluded from the process. We deal with truth and love, respecting the freedom of those we're dealing with. The next week, or uh, I, when I, I taught, the first lesson is that we live in America today in what is universally conceded to be the most difficult mission field in the world. Americans are more resistant to the gospel, Eastern, Western Europeans are more resistant to the gospel than any other group in the world. And it has to do with the materialistic worldview that we all just absorb uh, because we live in the culture we live in with the values that culture has. That was the major sort of point of week two. Last week, I don't know exactly what J.K. said, but I can tell you what the book said, uh, uh, that interestingly enough, when we talk about the blessed life, we say, well, I'm so blessed I got a new job. I'm so blessed I got married last week. I'm so blessed I bought a new car. We automatically, when we talk about blessings, talk about physical blessings. Interestingly enough, Jesus never talks about that. In fact, he subverts all that uh, because he says and say, blessed are you when you get a new job. He says, blessed are you when you're poor. He doesn't say, blessed are you when you've had a great meal at Folks Folly. He says, blessed are you when you're hungry. Uh, he says that blessing, real blessing, is not something that we get physically, striking right at the heart of the core of our society. Real blessing has to do with the relationship with God. And that brings us to this week, uh, which is um, uh, about the cost of discipleship. And I am going to talk a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week because I think to understand him as a man is to understand more deeply uh, how important this little study we're doing is. Um, the text for this week, if there was going to be a text, would be this one. If anyone would come after me... He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, that verse is probably the verse that describes Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life and the meaning of that life. So with that, and by the way, you all know you can stop me, raise your hand, and ask questions. I'm sure by now you know that. Okay, a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, I think it's interesting to know a little bit about this man. I'm going to essay it for just a minute. He was born in 1906. His father was the most prominent psychiatrist in all of Germany. In fact, he actually did some psychiatric work related to Adolf Hitler. Uh, he, uh, his mother was also from a prominent family. Uh, the family was uh, religious in its background, and the mother was religious. 
But the father was not, and the family really, they didn't go to church. Uh, they only, uh, Christmas and Easter Christians, you might say, they did have a very close family structure. And while the Bonhoeffers were not royalty, they lay in that social class in pre-World War I Germany that was the professional class that made Germany work. Very prominent social class. The people that were the doctors, the lawyers, the pastors, the people that sort of made the social structure of pre-World War I Germany work. Well, I, I have put this in just so you know, he dies uh, April 9th, 1945. That is to say he is 39 years old when he dies. So I'll just ask the group, how mature were all of us at 39 years old? I was just leaving my teen years at 39 years old. Um, so he dies young, and when we talk about his views, particularly as we get to the end of his life, we need to realize this is a man who died really before his views were, were, were finally formed. He, he died at the end of his youth, not at the beginning of old age. Um, so he had, this is important. His oldest brother was killed in 1918 in World War I. And that event had an impact on his life, we think, because two years later, at the age of 14, he announced to the family that he was going to be a theologian at 14 years old. Uh, by the way, a characteristic that leads him to his martyrdom, he was pretty hard-headed. His father, as most fathers who were professional psychiatrists and not religious would be, was not very enthusiastic about this. He had a brother that was a, a pretty good lawyer, a brother-in-law that was a very famous lawyer in Germany. None of these people thought being a theologian was worth doing any, was worth a thing. Uh, and they tried to talk him out of it. He refused to talk about it. In 1927, so he's what, 19 years old now? Um, he writes his first doctoral thesis in Germany, and that doctoral thesis is called Sacred Community or Sanctorum Communium. It is still regarded as a pretty important theological work. So he's immediately seen as a rising star. He's immediately seen as a rising star in the German theological circles. And because he lived across the street from one of the most famous liberal theologians in Germany, and because he was, uh, his tutor was a, one of the most famous liberal theologians in Germany, it was assumed that he would be a, a liberal theologian uh, and would follow the work of Schlermacher and the others of the liberal cause. But he doesn't exactly do that. He doesn't not do it, but he doesn't exactly do it. Okay. In 1930, he writes, uh, I'm going to stop, say 19, I'm going to stop here, 1927. Between 1927 and 1930, two things happen that are very important. I didn't put it in the timeline, but it's very important. One, he goes to the United, comes to the United States, he studies at Union in New York for one year, postgraduate. And in that year, he attends black churches in Harlem. And for the first time in his life, he sees a faith that is emotional and not mental. And he is changed. And from that point forward, there is a mystical, devotional side of Bonhoeffer's life. He begins to write, um, he begins to read the Bible devotionally. He doesn't read it as a scholar anymore, primarily, but devotionally, daily. He has a daily discipline of reading the Bible. The second thing that happens that I didn't put in the timeline is he goes to Spain and spends a year there as a pastor of an expatriate German church in Spain. 
It's important for us because he teaches on the Beatitudes while he is there, and he begins the work that will ultimately, in 1937, you will find out, ends up in the book Cost of Discipleship, upon which this course finds a root. So you can see that his mind is slowly, ever so slowly, uh, beginning to move in a certain direction. Okay? That's for whatever that's worth. Um, now, in 1933, Hitler is made Chancellor of Germany. Uh, on the very night that Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany, Bonhoeffer spoke out on the radio, and he's cut off. The radio goes dead all over Germany. So early on, Bonhoeffer is on a list of people that Hitler is not fond of. And early on, he begins to be in the resistance to Hitler. Now, I just want to stop here because this is where I think we want to talk about the, the he's not superhuman. <laughs> the guy is, he's a, he's a bright guy, he's a strong guy, he's got from a good family, but he doesn't make, he makes mistakes just like the rest of us do. Uh, and he's young. We all know what that means. So he joins the resistance to Hitler and in the beginning, and actually all the way up to about 1941, two years before he's arrested, his opposition has to do with the Nazis trying to take over the German church. He, his sacred community established the sacred nature of the church and its independence from secular authorities. And so from right from the beginning, Bonhoeffer theologically thinks Hitler is wrong to take over the German church. And they were deliberately doing that. They were deliberately doing that uh, by appointing bishops that supported Hitler, by subverting the funding of the confessing churches. In a variety of ways, they tried to destroy any opposition to Hitler in the Protestant churches in Germany. And Bonhoeffer's real focus for nearly a decade is that, not opposing the Hitler regime. Now, the Jews to this very day have not made him one of their heroes because although he helps people escape from Germany, he does not speak up against the Jewish laws. He speaks up against their application as relates to the church. Uh, for example, uh, there were many German pastors that had Jewish blood. And he speaks up against that right from the beginning. I, I think he's trying to be a good guy. Well, uh, Ron talked to us about the, uh, the Barman Declaration. Before Barman, there was another declaration called the Dahlman Declaration. That particular declaration was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a Lutheran and also by a Reformed theologian. And Bonhoeffer, in this little in this large confession, basically isn't satisfied with opposing Hitler. He just tries to solve all theological problems in the German church right at one point in time uh, with Hitler. And it's rejected by everybody, and he gets a bad name. And in addition to that, he teaches a Bible study. I think it was on Zechariah. I can't remember. But it was widely thought among the confessing church to be uh, over the top in its opposition to Hitler. So that he leaves Germany again. He goes to England and he teaches in England at a church for two years. And then he comes back and he's made head of this famous seminary in Finkenwald in 1935. Okay? And I can't get into it, but Finkenwald is often used as a summary term 
for three different seminaries that he participated in. The first one, Finkenwald, the famous one, and after they closed Finkenwald, he taught privately these pastors uh, through a church movement that the Confessing Church started. And it's at that period that he finalizes his two greatest works, at least popularly greatest works. Uh, he, in 1937, right after the seminary is closed, he publishes Cost of Discipleship. And then in 1938, he publishes Life Together. Okay, so 37, 38, that year is the year in which he publishes basically those books that for people like us define who he is because we don't read his scholarly works. I don't anyway. Um, so that, that's, that's who he is. He then leaves uh, Germany, comes to the United States for about three weeks because everyone knows by now that he's on a list of people that Hitler wants to get rid of. And not Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Althauser and a bunch of guys from Union in New York, they decide they want to get him out of Germany, uh, get him to where he'll be safe. They bring him to New York. Very famously, three weeks later, he says, he writes a letter. <clears throat> he says, I cannot stay in the United States. I have to go back to Germany and suffer with the German people if I want to be part of the reconstruction of Germany. And so he goes home. But by the time he gets home, he, is, he cannot do any business in Berlin. So he's been exiled from Berlin. He can live there a little bit because of his parents. Uh, he cannot teach in any German university. He cannot, they've closed his seminaries. He can't teach confessing church peoples, uh, the confessing church. And on top of that, he's a persona non grata for a lot of the confessing church movement. Uh, so that... And by the way, he ends up joining the resistance to Hitler. His brother-in-law, Hans Donier, was uh, in the Abwehr, the German Secret Service. He was head, of, basically, he wasn't the head of the plot against Hitler. He was that lawyer, we all know, that's what we lawyers do. He was that lawyer that kept it organized and did all the footwork for the generals that were trying to get rid of Hitler. And what Bonhoeffer really did uh, in the resistance, it's sometimes... Uh, he, he basically acted as a courier. He was able to travel because of his work in the ecumenical movement. He was able to go to Sweden and Switzerland and other places and he would carry messages to the West uh, alerting them that there was a resistance to Hitler in Germany. Um, and uh, it's, he is therefore aware of the plot against Hitler and of its content. Okay, I think sometimes he was not part of the plot in the sense that he was going to pull the trigger or help build the bomb that was going to be done by more capable people. Um, but he was aware. In, in 1943, um, he is arrested and placed in prison, and he spends the rest of his life in three German prisons. Um, after D-Day, when the Nazis, uh, when the, uh, the, the bomb, the famous bomb that they tried to blow up Hitler, the SS went into the offices of the Abwar and they discovered the documents that proved the conspiracy and who was involved in it. And from that point forward, from September of 1944 forward, he's a dead man. Uh, it's just a matter of time until Hitler kills him. And he did three days or four days before the war ended in April of 1944. So that's a little bit about the man. He's a human being. He makes mistakes. He acts unwisely occasionally. But there's this guiding thought that he's going to follow Christ where Christ leads him. 
He is, for example, very aware. He's not very well thought of in Germany a lot today because he participated in the plot against Hitler. He's very aware that as a pastor, being involved in a murder plot was immoral. He's very aware of that. And when he's asked about it by some of his students, he says, he who dies, lives by the sword dies by the sword. He's very aware of where he has placed himself. But he felt that these decisions he was making were the best and only decision he could make under the circumstances. That's what he feels. And he is not feeling that he's acting completely morally. This is a good thing for us to know. You know, sometimes we cannot make <laughs> the exact right decision. Sometimes we cannot act with perfect morality. <laughs> we can only act as good as we can possibly act under the circumstances within which God has placed us. Right? And that's what the message of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life is, if you want my opinion. Okay? Um, all right. Now, the basic idea of the cost of discipleship. I probably have talked a little bit too long about his life, but it'll help. First of all, it's based on the Sermon on the Mount. The entire book is nothing more than just a long reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Uh, and particularly, the Beatitudes sit at the center of it, which is part of why we did last week. Secondly, it applies the Sermon on the Mount to critique contemporary German Christianity, but I, it applies to us too, okay? It's about discipleship. It's about following Christ. It's about following Christ. I meant to bring you my, my book. I will one of these weeks, but my copy that I bought at Trinity and when I was in college is so torn up that I actually have to use rubber bands to sort of keep it together, and I lose pages all the time anyway. Bonhoeffer, by the way, is not an evangelical. But it's very interesting that he's been adopted by the evangelical movement. He is not an evangelical. He was very uncomfortable with the idea that we give testimonies. Uh, like any good Lutheran uh, who believes in the sovereignty of God, he's very uncomfortable with the idea that we make any decisions for Christ. Christ makes a decision for us. <laughs> uh, he's very uncomfortable with that. Um, and he didn't really like that portion of American evangelicalism that we belong to, okay? He, it just wasn't part of who he was as a person. Remember, this is a guy from an old German family, famous German family. Very restrained. So he's not, uh, he's not the, the evangelical superstar that sometimes evangelical Christians make. That doesn't mean he's not a great Christian, by the way. <laughs> that, nor does it mean that he's right about everything. I don't think he's right about testimonies. I don't think he's right about that. Remember that he grew up in a state church where everybody belongs to the church. Everybody gets baptized so that there's no reason to think about the kinds of things that we have to think about in our culture. So we, can't, we should not criticize him for not thinking about things that were irrelevant to him. Okay? All right. Um, now, I found a quote from a young lady yesterday that I decided to read to you. What it, this book is, without any question, the most famous book of theology of the 20th century. It's been read not just by scholars, uh, in fact, not even mostly by scholars, but by lay people. It's, it's an extremely important book. This lady said, the simple idea that Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him has been a constant drumbeat, echoing even faintly during the times in which I felt furthest from God. I heard it and felt the call. I think God used this book to turn my attention to the core of our faith. 
Cruciform discipleship, that is, following Jesus the way Jesus actually lived. Um, or in simple terms, hearing Jesus' gentle call, listening to him, following him, obeying him, and being his messengers in the world. If you guys can just remember that quote from Rebecca, you'll have the whole lesson and you don't need to listen to me anymore. Um, now, um, without question, the most famous part of the book occurs in the first chapter, which is probably why the book became famous. It catches everybody's attention. Because he wants to talk about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He wants to talk about that grace that does, makes no difference in our lives, causes us no way to change our behavior, but just to be satisfied that we're on God's team. And that grace that changes our lives, transforms our lives, and makes us into new people. The one is cheap and worthless. The other is worth everything to us. Okay? So cheap grace, he says, is the enemy of the church. I'm going to stop there and say, remember, cheap grace. That grace you hear on TV and radio almost every day if you listen to Christian radio, and I do a lot, uh, is cheap grace. It requires nothing. Except Jesus, you'll go to heaven and you can just continue to be the miserable sinner you are from now until the day you die. That's cheap grace. Okay? It's the enemy of the church. It is not our friend. It's not our friend. It's the enemy of real faith. It's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without any form of church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. It's just a theory of how you get to heaven. It doesn't require anything of us. That's what Bonhoeffer means by cheap Grace, And as I say in the book that I wrote, uh, if cheap grace was a problem in 1937 in Germany, believe me, it's a problem in, in 2023 in the United States of America. It's probably a worse problem today in the United States than it ever was in Germany. So let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, grace is a priceless treasure. Jesus says it's like a pearl that's in a field and a man finds it and when he finds it, he goes and sells everything else he owns just so he can get that pearl. Just so that he can have that one thing of supreme value. So it's a priceless treasure worth all of our goods, all of our lives, all of our personal desires. Secondly, grace, costly grace is a call to unreservedly follow Christ. By the way, the, the quotes mean, I'm quoting Bonhoeffer. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because he, it gives a man his only true life. You know, one of the most famous quotes of Bonhoeffer occurs as he's dying. Now, when they led him to the platform, um, he's confronted by a German officer who advises him that he's going to die. And he says, for you, this is the end. But for me, it's the beginning. You see, he, it, 
His grace cost Dietrich Bonhoeffer his physical life, but it did not cost him that life that is eternal. Costly grace condemns sin and converts the sinner to a new life. I don't know about you. How many of you have a deep sense of your own sinfulness? I, I try, but I just don't. You know, I would like to think I'm a sinner. I think it has to, be, has to do with being a lawyer. I wish they was. It has to be with being a lawyer because we are such great sinners that we really couldn't live with ourselves if we admitted it. So you kind of get to where you can ignore it. I think I find it easy to ignore my sin and hard to confront myself with it. <laughs> That's what I think about myself. I find it easy to think I'm really a pretty good guy on a scale of 1 to 10. I might not be a 10, but maybe I'm an 8 and a half or something like that. Uh, and that's certainly good enough to get into heaven, so hey, I'm okay. It's only when we confront our sin that we do what? Change, that's right. It's only when we confront our sin that we grow. It's only when we confront our sin that we say, okay, I'm not as good as I thought. <laughs> In fact, I might not even be very good at all. And I have to change unless I want to continue to be the person that I am. So repentance is an important thing. And so the, the modern church that tends to, and I do this, by the way, myself, we tend to want to be therapeutic with people. You'll be happier if you come to Christ. You'll be psychologically more whole. And we don't really get to this, you know, you have a problem and it's sin. You have a problem that it's in its sin. Uh, I once had a person in my congregation who had been pretty terribly abused as a child, uh, had been um, abused by her mother's boyfriends, basically, uh, and um, was pretty messed up and was a victim. But you know what? The victimhood never got her out of her situation. It was only when she realized that I have used my sexuality to manipulate men, I learned to do this. <laughs> and I am partially responsible for my condition that she got out of it. So even though we are all victims, you know, we like to blame our parents for everything now, uh, even though we all have had bad things done to us, we've done bad things too. <laughs> and it's that we can change. Can't change what my parents did to me, can't change that at all, can't change what my do you know that I'm not very good at math because I had an eighth grade math teacher that hated me? <laughs> Mrs. Heberlin. But really, it's not Mrs. Heberlin's fault that I never paid any attention to math the next day because it's also kind of hard to do, right? So uh, part of it was just Chris's laziness, wasn't it? Okay. Costly grace requires obedience. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. In the book, I go over this little fact many times. Jesus comes to the disciples and what's the first thing he says? Does he say, come believe in me? Come and follow me. Come and follow me. The first word of Jesus to all of us is not believe in me, it's follow me. 
It's come and follow me and be my disciple. And along the way, I'm going to show you what real life is all about. Along the way, I'm going to show you what God meant you to be. Uh, which, by the way, means that discipleship is a journey. Uh, it means that conversion is a journey. And it means that rarely will we be involved in a one-second, one-moment conversion and total turnaround of a person's life. Most of the time, we're in for a journey. And we may only be part of their journey. <laughs> we may only be a small part of this journey. Um, Kathy and I met at First Presbyterian Church of Houston, and we were youth advisors. And um, uh, I was the worst youth advisor. I, you wouldn't know it from sitting here watching me, but I'm actually pretty introverted and uh, find it hard to connect with people. And so I was really in charge of connecting with the nerds. And we had, this, um, we had this girl. She wasn't very attractive. She was overweight and, you know, kind of plain. Frances was her name. Uh, and Frances used to sit alone at youth group. Well, I got in the habit of going over and sitting next to Frances. And I remember very vividly one day, Frances and I had a little conversation. And um, I spoke to her about, you know, I'm kind of an odd guy, too, and I don't fit in. And, you know, it's okay not to fit in. You know, you can be a Christian and not fit in. That's okay. And honestly, I, that's the last conversation. Well, about 20 years later, the name flips in my head. I said, Kathy, whatever happened to Frances Furquin? She said, you didn't know? I said, no. What happened to her? Well, she went to Young Life Camp, and she became a Christian. She went off to college, and she met a guy, and she's now the wife of a pastor in Canada. Well, my little part in Frances' life was just one day at, in a window seat at a youth group meeting. I wasn't a big story, but I was part of that story. That's us. We're all part of people's Christian story. We're not the whole story. We don't need to take that on ourselves. We're just part of the story of everybody we meet. <laughs> just hold that one for a thought. Okay, next. Costly grace requires sacrifice. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So if God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should have eternal life. If God gave his, the word is gave, you pass that up, right? Uh, then we can give a little bit of ourselves for other people too, can't we? In the name of Christ. Okay. A little bit of a summary here. What is real costly grace? First of all, costly grace is the only real grace. There's no other kind of grace. Okay. Uh, all, all the grace that's not costly grace is false grace. Costly grace is discipleship. Costly grace is that long, hard journey that begins when we become Christians and ends on the day of our death where we gradually become more like Jesus. And none of us is ever getting to exactly like Jesus during our lives, right? <laughs> so we're on a journey, and so is everyone we meet in the church. They're on a little journey, and it's a journey from wherever they are to where God is taking them. And it's their journey. It's not our journey. That's why we have to respect their freedom, okay? Um, costly grace is following Christ daily. So it's not about being a pastor. It's not about being an evangelist. It's not about being a church leader. It's about wherever we are in whatever we are doing, being a Christian in our daily 
lives, whether we're at the office or raising children or at school or whatever we're doing, that's what it's about. It is about a lifestyle, a way of being in the world, or in my quiet time this morning, it's about a unity of our heart, mind, body, and soul living in the real world, making a little bit of difference for love and truth in that world along the way. <laughs> okay, that's what it's about. Uh, and costly grace is not an idea, but it's a way of life following Christ. If there's nothing I can get through to the class that I think, we in the West have a big problem with thinking that what matters is our doctrine. What matters is our doctrine, the content of what we believe, what's in our head. I don't want to say it's unimportant, but we'll find out who's right about doctrine in heaven, so we kind of have to live here. Uh, in the situation we find ourselves without knowing exactly who's right about all matters of doctrine. It's a matter of the life we lead in the midst of that doctrine. So the greatest argument for Lutheran doctrine is not its doctrine, it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> okay? That, that's the greatest argument. Uh, the greatest argument is Bonhoeffer. Um, so, what does this costly grace mean for our focus we have in this class on the Great Commission? First of all, the Great Commission is not a call to get people to accept Christ. Oh my gosh. We spend so much time talking about getting people to accept Christ. But that's not what it's about. It's not about getting people to accept Jesus. That's a step. That's a part. Can't have, I can't become a disciple unless I decide to follow Jesus, can I? <laughs> uh, but that's all it is, is a moment. A moment in the journey. Okay? The Great Commission is a call to make disciples. That's what Jesus said to do. And that is much harder than getting people to accept Christ. Much harder. You know, I, I, I you all know... So I've been a pastor for a long time, and I, I, a little fact, but I actually, act, I, I was a debater and I acted in high school. Given the right music, given the right emotions, giving the right smoke, you can get people emotional. <laughs> you can get people. One of the things I fought during the last part of my ministry was having worship be too beautiful so that it was the beauty of the worship and not Christ that we were all focused on. <laughs> or sermons that are too beautiful. Uh, or prayers that are too beautiful. Because we're not there about that. We're there about Jesus, right? That's what we're there about. Uh, and so we're called to make disciples, whatever that means, and part of basically what it does mean is we have to control ourselves. <laughs> Making disciples is actually a lot about self-control. Uh, making disciple is a time-consuming process of teaching, of mentoring, and of modeling faith. So discipleship takes time and energy and commitment. And, uh, and therefore, for most of us, um, we're not going to be Billy Graham. It's not going to be about 50,000 people at a stadium in San Antonio, Texas. Most of us are going to find one or two or three people that we can commit our lives to. That's what we have time to do, right? Uh, so for most of us, it's getting involved in the lives of one, two, or three people and devoting ourselves to their spiritual growth, not some big plan we have. There are people who get to play the big plan, uh, and that God bless them. Uh, 
Uh, but most of us, that's not what we're called to do. You know, it's just not who we are. It's not what we're skilled to do. Uh, it's not the spiritual gifts that we have. But all of us can help a person grow in Christ in some way. Somebody. There's got to be somebody, okay, uh, that we can help grow in Christ. Okay. I don't even know where we are in this lesson. Uh, okay, so what is a disciple? A disciple is a person who has learned to think, feel, and live as Jesus lived physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It so happens in my devotion this morning, Romans 12, 1 through 4, happened to be my verse. So it says, give yourselves as living sacrifices to God by the renewing of your mind. And then he goes on to talk about living in harmony with others, being humble, uh, being in peace with other people. So he's basic, Paul's basically saying you need a transformation of your mind so that you can be transformed, not in your mind, but in your soul, in your body, in your spirit, so that you can emotionally, physically, mentally be what Jesus was in your society, not just up here. Jesus molded his disciples into a community that became the church. A disciple is part of the community of the church. Uh, this is really hard in our society. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I meet including some members of our family, who say, well, I, I have a spirituality, but I don't need the church. And if you just watch TV, the church is always corrupt in TV. And I, watched, I watch British television all the time, and boy, you would think the Church of England had nothing going for it if you watch British TV very, very much. Um, there is, one of our doctors, there is no salvation outside the church, and guess why that is? Because there's no salvation without love, and love means there's got to be somebody around I'm loving, right? <laughs> Uh, there's no love that sort of exists out there, poof. Love is always an action by the lover toward the beloved. That's love. So without the church, for us to have a little laboratory of love, uh, there is no real change in our lives. Uh, all pastors sort of get to dislike church hoppers, right? We all get to dislike church hoppers. Um, and they're just people that go from church to church. My needs aren't being met here. My needs aren't being met there. I don't like... Well, the truth is, uh, God puts us... In a, this is true of marriage. Your children can learn this lesson profitably. The reason Kathy, God gave me Kathy is so that she could irritate me. <laughs> so that I would realize that I'm not perfect so that I would change, so that I would become a better person, and so that I would learn that I can't just love Kathy for her cute smile and her pretty face. I have to love her for all that she is, the good with the bad, right? And that's why God gives us the church, so that we, we can learn that we have to love other people inside the kingdom of God, not just like the people who are like us, not just the people we appreciate, not just the people who we think are nice people, not just the best people in the church, not the biggest. We have to love everybody. The hardest lesson for pastors and the guys that don't make it never learn the lesson is when you're called to a church, you don't get to love just the people who like you. Because no matter how good, if you're the greatest pastor in the universe, 10% of your church doesn't like you. <laughs> doesn't think you should be there. And those people you have to learn to love. At least 10%. Uh, no matter how good you are, 10% of the people think you're off base. 
Or one of my favorite stories, he knows the person. There's a very famous pastor in Texas history called <clears throat> Charles L. King. Charlie King, he, the reason we have Mo Ranch is because of Charlie King. Uh, Charlie King was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Houston for many, many years. He, re he baptized my wife. He, he retired in 1961. So that I want to give you some. I became a Christian in 1976. And in talking to a lady in our church one day, she said, you know, that new pastor is okay but nothing like Dr. King. Well, that meant that Jack lived in the shadow of Dr. King for now 17 years. He's near retirement. He's five years away from retirement, and there's still people around saying he's just not the man Dr. King was. But Jack's job was to love those people just like he loved the people who thought he was the new Dr. King. Okay? So that's, that's the heart. A disciple is a person who is being molded by self-discipline and the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. I put those two words together. Molded by self-discipline and the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it on our own, but that doesn't mean we don't have to do something, right? Every morning, including the mornings I don't want to, I have to get up and open my Bible and read it. I get to open the Bible, the Holy Spirit doesn't open it for me. Okay? Uh, every day when I do my prayer time, even though I don't have time to do it, like this morning I didn't have time to do it, I had to force myself to do it. Kathy is telling me it's time to get ready. Still and all, the Holy Spirit's inspiring me to do it, but i got to do it, right? I've got to sit there and keep my mind concentrated until it's over. Uh, so that we have a discipline to do. That's part of what Bonhoeffer wants to make sure we understand. And what we need to make other people understand. Because the discipleship isn't easy, is it? So if we create the false illusion that you believe in Jesus and it's going to be okay. In fact, it's going to be easy. Because the Holy Spirit is just going to drift you from success to success. If we give people that idea, what's going to happen? They're going to get disillusioned. They're going to get disillusioned. Uh, in the 70s, I had the opportunity to travel in Russia. And right after uh, the fall of communism, it was very close, um, there was a huge spiritual outburst in Russia but part of it was we're going to become Christians and then we're going to become Westerners and then we're going to become rich and lots of our missions fed that we fed that but guess what happened we didn't get rich and we did get Putin and we did get Putin because it was also then a great disillusionment so it's I put it this way, it's always better, Tom might not agree with this, it's always, in my opinion, better to undersell a little bit. <laughs> it's always a good idea that the customer gets more than you thought he was going to get, right? It's always good, I always used to tell myself, it's always good if the bill, if the quote I give a client for what it's going to cost to do this legal project is a little bit high, because then when I come in low, he's going to feel good about it. Uh, it's always good to undersell just a little bit, and we should do that in the Christian faith. We shouldn't make it something that it's not. We shouldn't make it something that it's not. Because if we do that, people will get disillusioned. And we don't want that. Okay, so here's what uh, he says in my copy on page 26, the final word. The way the early church grew was by reproducing in community reproducing in community 
and individual lives who Jesus was and what Jesus had done while he was with his disciples. So our job here at First Presbyterian Church, happens to be ours, is to reproduce in community who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Which means it's not the individual responsibility of Bob Fuller or Mitchell Moore or Becky Pritchard or Ron Skates. It's not one person or one group's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility as a community. We all don't have the same skills. We don't have the same spiritual gifts. We all don't get to play the same part. Uh, but each one of us does have a part. Of that we are assured by the Apostle Paul, I think, about five times. That everyone is part of the body of Christ, and we all have a gift in that body, and we all have something we can do to help disciple people within that body. Everybody, not just a few. And that's it for today. Any questions? We have a few minutes. Yes? Very influential. Thank you for asking that question. So Bonhoeffer was a twin. Uh, his sister married a Jewish lawyer. And one of the first and most difficult things he had to do was get them out of Germany. <laughs> uh, and uh, he ended up, I believe his sister's husband ended up in Great Britain. I believe he was like uh, a vice chairman of British Airways or a chief lawyer for British Airways at the, by the time of his death. Um, the, by the way, uh, she lives, he lives, I believe every other member of the family is killed before it's over. Uh, Klaus, Dietrich, and Hans Donier, uh, they are all part of the plot to kill Hitler, and so they are all killed at the last week of the war, last weeks of the war. So his brother that died was his twin? No. Oh. He had a sister. He had a sister who was a twin. They were very close. Okay. Uh, and... Um, the, the story, I'll give you, there are two books you can read. One is shorter. Uh, Eric Metaxas wrote a book called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Prophet, Prophet, Priest, and Spy. It's a very good book. It's evangelical in its orientation uh, and very comfortable. Uh, Eberhard Bethke, his best friend, wrote what I think is the best biography of him. It's unfortunately 1,500 pages long, so you have to, you know, what he had for breakfast is part of the menu. Uh, but uh, it's actually an excellent biography, of, and he, Bethke knew him as well as any human being knew Dietrich Bonhoeffer except his family. And so he can write with great insight into his character. He, for example, is the one who pointed out, for me, he's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He's a young guy. Uh, he's not fully formed. He can be reckless. Uh, and um, uh, we shouldn't think that he's something different than what we are. That's what I hope you got out of that. <laughs> Is it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, prophet, priest, and spy. Priest is probably wrong. Prophet, pastor, and spy is probably right, since he's a Lutheran. Uh, I was at Union. That day, visited the seminary. Uh -huh. One day, my best friend and I, a couple of us, at lunch at Lingo Hall, in walks sits down with us and we spent a whole hour, a few hours. I, was, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I didn't know really who he was. Uh, I knew he 
I didn't really know who Bonhoeffer was. At the time. Uh, very, so uh, we, when we get to the end, Bonhoeffer's in prison from 43 forward. Bethke was his assistant at the seminary in Finkenwald, um, but he continues to write to Bethke, and so the final book, Letters and Papers are from Prison, the majority of those letters are to Bethke. Uh, and so um, that's where we see, and we'll get, when we get to the end of his life, I'll ask, I'm not going to do that this morning. Thank you for bringing that up. Next question. Yes. I would just like to share this prayer request that we received from the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico. Last week, a pastor in Chiapas was um, put in jail for preaching the gospel. He's his name is Gilbert. <coughs> He's been. surrendered the, themselves to be traded. They are now incarcerated so that he can have medical attention. And the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico that our church has a five-year covenant with has put <coughs> on their demanding, because their constitution, this is clearly against the law of the land. This has happened in an area that's in the south, very poor, called Chiapas. Chiapas is, has a lot of communism and poverty and lack of liberty and justice. Anyway, Drugs. they have asked, they sent, the church sent us a prayer request. I shared it with a, our Mission South Committee and our pastors, but it made me <clears throat> remember this because of Bonhoeffer. So if y'all would just pray, it says to please pray for strength in God's care for the illegally retained brothers, for the health and integrity of Brother Gilberto Diaz, for wisdom and perseverance for the delegation of the church representatives and their lawyers, and for prompt intervention of the authorities of the Mexican state to resolve this situation of injustice and oppression. Um, so I, I think that'll be a, So if that little... We do live in a world in which the kind of courage that Bonhoeffer had is needed. Uh, the current government of Mexico is, I don't like to use the word socialism because it's really a form of Nazism. China is really not a communist state, it's a Nazi state. Uh, they've, they've given all the money to the families of the Communist Party and now they're all running it for themselves. Uh, and. Mexico's in deep trouble, and the government is hostile to the Christian faith, very hostile. They're closing Christian schools. They're trying to decertify Christian institutions. Uh, Mexico did not have a, uh, outside the Catholic Church, it didn't have a strong religious heritage after the revolution because <clears throat> the revolution was partly against historic Catholicism. Um, so that um, it's troubled. It's a troubled country right now. Presbyterians, just for your information, we made a great deal with the Methodists. We're not as smart, we Presbyterians, as we think we are. We made this great deal that the Methodists could have everything north of Mexico City and we would take everything south, which meant they got all the wealth and we got all the poverty. Uh, and so we have, we, there is a Presbyterian Church of Mexico we're in partnership with and it does have some churches on the north, uh, but basically it's small rural churches for the most part, uh, very poor. Uh, very poor. 
And so we, our partner down there is not a wealthy, uh, a wealthy denomination at all. But larger than all the Presbyterian churches in America. Put yeah. together. Yeah. But it's very, it's, it's very small rural churches. Uh, in Merida, in a few places, we have, um, we have some rather nice large churches, but very few, very few. Uh, some in Mexico City. Um, so keep that in prayer um, because it is an important prayer request that Kathy. Okay. Any, any other questions? Are we ready? Is it time? Bonhoeffer was a pacifist at the beginning of the war. Was that because his brother was killed in World War One? Is that? So this, I'm glad you asked that, Ron. Thank you, because I wanted to bring this into the lesson. I couldn't figure out why, uh, because it's not rel it's relevant to my political studies. But Bonhoeffer was a great admirer of Gandhi a great admirer of Gandhi, and when he goes back to form the seminary in Finkenwald, he was actually in conversation with Gandhi about going to India and living with him in an ashram. That's how serious he was. Uh, in, and I, this here is a great, because he was a pacifist. He was a pacifist before the war, uh, and during the war, during the Finkenwald years, he works for pacifism. It's very hard for him because a lot of those students ended up in the German army on the Russian front. So he ends up with a lot of these students dying in Russia. Um, yet he goes back and becomes a part of the plot to kill Hitler. Many people believe he made the wrong decision here. Uh, and that he should have been, maintained his pacifism. And like I said, there's a critique of Bonhoeffer to be made. All I can tell you, and I have to use a, a philosophical word, is Bonhoeffer is influ influenced by Kierkegaard, who is the founder of existentialism. And I think, I believe, that although he remains a pacifist, he does not believe that he can do anything but oppose Hitler. So that he, and he's aware that the decision he's making is not moral. He is aware that the plot is not moral, but he feels he must do it. That's what I try to say. He's a real guy in the real world making real decisions in really bad circumstances. And we should all hope we never have to be real guys in the real world making real decisions in real bad circumstances because you have to make decisions. Until World War II. Um, Bart was a pacifist, I think, until World War II. Um, so that, I think, helps us understand that, you know, our theories are our theories, but we have to live a real life right here. <laughs> we have to embody those theories. And as any businessman knows, uh, the five-year plan never really looks like what really happens, does it? You probably learned that never. in government. <laughs> never, never. 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 <laughs> yes. The, uh, the metaxas, the, the title of the book is sort of interesting. Uh, pastor, martyr, and prophets by a righteous Gentile worship. Yeah. I, I encourage you to read that one. Actually, Besky's book is actually easy to read, and he's a good writer, uh, which is rare in German. Um, but um, it's long, really long. <laughs> All right, so I pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I, I think I forgot to pray for Tom doing well when I began this. We pray that you'd be with him and his recovery. We do pray for this family that lost uh, a husband and father and our church that lost a policeman. Uh, we ask that you would be with them and watch over them. Oh Lord, we pray for the Presbyterian Church of Mexico and this family in Chiapas, Gilbert.
and his church. Lord, we are reminded that many people serve you in much less easy circumstances than we do. Much less. Now we pray that you would be with them and watch over them and take care of them. We do pray, Lord, for this government in Mexico that um, has been hostile to the Christian faith. And we do pray that you'd be working with those uh, people in the government uh, to change their hearts and their minds uh, that they might uh, give that country uh, a better leadership and better way of life. And we pray that for our own leadership as well. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with our class and with our church as we go forward to serve you uh, in the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.